To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch buck? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's going on, guys? Brand new podcast this week. So I have back on my friend Josh Kinzer from Swagger Bipods. Swagger Bipods has been a supporter of me and the podcast from the very beginning. And and Josh is the perfect spokesperson for Swagger as he has a, a military background. He's all about accuracy, execution. Um, and with that military background, he's traveled all over the world. And, and now he's so passionate about hunting um, he travels to all these wild places around the world to hunt. And so Josh has just got the, the the funnest stories. And we coaxed a couple out here on the podcast. Just a great recording. I really enjoyed it. I know you guys are going to enjoy it too. Sponsor for today's show is Swagger Bipods. Uh, we talk about them a bit in the podcast, but they just build the best pot, the best shooting sticks, the, the, the best bipods on the market. Um, being accurate with a rifle is all about your rest, and, and Swagger gets you a solid rest in, in different shooting positions, also varied terrain, and then it also lets you track your target so you don't have to pick your bipod up and set it back down. Uh, just a great product. It's really helped my girls the last couple years be successful on mule deer and on, on whitetail deer, just getting that solid rest and being able to execute a good shot. So uh, I really appreciate Swagger. If you guys are in the market for new shooting sticks, new bipod, make sure to check them out. Over there at Eastman's, just finishing up show season. Um, great to get together with those guys and have some laughs. Uh, we got some great recordings there at the shows. Uh, excited to release those to you guys. Um, and so just keeping in contact with those guys, um, we've got some, some new things on the horizon. I'm really excited about, we have this, we have this new tag hub that's going to launch the most comprehensive research for Western hunting that I've ever seen. Uh, it has all the units, all the weapons, even the over the counter stuff you can search. And it's going to be this, this internet resource with, with all these, these data points like, um, Colorado has a, a thousand page booklet on on deer and statistics. It's all in there. Colorado has fifty six thousand data points. It's all in there. It's um it's going to be such a great research tool to find the hunts that that really fit your needs. So it'll be launching here in the next couple days. I should have access to it today or tomorrow. Super excited because I've got uh, New Mexico to put in for. I've got Nevada to put in for. Got to get those couple checked off my list. And so um, really going to use this research tool to to uh, check out some different hunts and in different different opportunities. So that's really cool. It's coming out. Uh, of course, we've got our Beyond the Grid internet TV show, Eastman's Hunting TV on the Outdoor Channel. Make sure to DVR that. Got some great episodes on there. And the magazine. Uh, the magazine is our it, it, it's our heart and soul. Like uh, it's it's our lifeblood over there at Eastman's. Um, man, the magazines, the subscriber stories are great. The pro staff articles, like every issue, they put a lot of thought into it to make sure that it pertains to Western hunting and what we're all doing right now. Uh, we also have the MRS section in the back. That's the members research section. Um, 
you know that also all that information is gonna gonna be in the tag hub as well um, w- with much more in there but uh, yeah the the members research section has helped me so much over the years just learn these different states and different units and where the quality hunts are to really get a good feeling on these other states and what I need to apply for so um, I use that a ton. Uh, we have the promo code at the podcast, so if you're interested in getting a subscription, uh, we do the Eastman's Hunting Journal, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal. Uh, you can get a subscription to to both magazines and a free Outdoor Edge knife, uh, $49.99, including shipping. Uh, you can just text code ELEVATED220 to 22828 or enter ELEVATED220 in the promo code on the website at uh, East. Uh, Gosh, drawing a blank at the end of the deal at uh, East. If you just search Eastman's, it'll come up. But um, thanks, you guys, for the support. Let's get into this podcast. So it's Josh Kinzer from Swagger Bipods. I'm your host, Brian Barney, Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. Uh, well, man, you've been busy. Uh, Swagger's been doing good. I'm seeing more and more Swagger Bipods around. Well, that's good. Yeah. Um, um, like, I, I just keep stating uh, it's the absolute best bipods in the market, and it's uh, accuracy is all about the rest. And even though I'm seeing more of these around and out and about, there's still a lot of guys showing up to hunting camp without shooting sticks and without bipods. I don't know how they do it. I, well... You know, they're. I, I think they they depend on that backpack. I I actually was trying to get some kills with our steel banger this past week, and you know, because it's just a traditional bipod that has the flex in it, so it doesn't. You know, I'm I'm shooting prone or nothing. And man, there were a lot of animal opportunities missed simply because I was just like, I really just want my old swaggers back. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you there. Well, um, they do just create more opportunities. It's just a better design, the way you have those things spring tension loaded, uh, set up on uneven terrain. And then, like, prone is definitely the best shooting position, but it just doesn't always work out that way. Yeah, I, you know, grass. Grass is the the main culprit there. Uh, does grass, do you think... Um, you know, I know grass, you can't see your target or can't see it through the scope or it's not high enough. It, it's got to also rob accuracy to, like, shoot through grass, right? Because I've seen guys oh, before. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anything touching you know, that bullet, right? Right. And, and the closer it is to you and the target, I mean, it just, you know, it just magnifies and multiplies. So, you know, if you, if you move it one millimeter one millionth of a millimeter at the muzzle or 10 feet in front of it. Well, at 300 yards, it gets to be quite an angle. (laughs) Yeah. Well, (laughs) that only makes sense, but I see so many guys, you know, because that, that prone is the best shooting position that we're all trying to get it in every scenario we can to make an accurate shot. But I think sometimes when you're laying down in that grass, just like when you're saying, you adjust that bullet's trajectory at all, and uh, you're going to be way off the mark at 300 yards. Oh, absolutely. I mean, no, no doubt. It's, it's just there's, there's no denying it. 
Yeah. Well, and um, that's where the swagger is nice is where you can get more height out of those 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 bipods. You know that those will go to a sitting. And for me, I mean, I can pretty much shoot a even a kneeling position with them. I, you know, the kneeling position I use probably more than than anything else because I rattle a lot. Oh. Um, you know, and, and when you're, I, I love seated positions too because i can get back and get my elbows in but you know if something's coming off to my left and my right and i need to turn for me to get that's one more movement for me to be discovered by the animal to get into that position um if that makes any sense so i i a lot of times will try to stay in you know, that seated position or kneeling position so that I can just be fluid to, to get on to whatever without that extra movement. Wow, that, that makes good sense, Josh. That uh, that action has to come uh, quick and hectic when you're rattling like that. I can just only imagine those white-tailed bucks uh, come come racing in, you know, and so you got to really look for your shot opportunity. Yeah, and, you know, if I can get somewhere where there's a Sendero and it's cut, and I know that they've got to come out in front of me to see what's fighting, you know, and I, right there, then, then I will, you know, get, get kind of hunkered down and get a little bit in a better seated position. But, you know, you just run the risk of you fortify and barricade yourself down, and then all of a sudden you got to move. Well, just a good way to be discovered. Oh, man. Well, and there's such big movements, too, when you're getting off your butt and you're trying to sit down again and readjust. There's a lot of movement there for a white tail to pick out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, looks like for you, sure. Looks like you harvested a good one. Um, you hunt your home state of Texas this year? Uh, I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looked like I saw like so, a good wide one come across your feed. Like uh, looked like a four on top or something, but real dark uh, chocolate antlers, like – just and really wide, like what I think of as a classic Texas whitetail. That's an interesting buck there because um, unless you've seen and 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 I know this because I've made um, I've met, made a mistake. I'm gonna I'm gonna walk in here to the kitchen and yeah, get no uh, a cup of coffee. Yep. Um, but when you get a deer that's really really old. He starts looking like a four-year-old deer, and then he starts looking like a three-year-old deer. And um, I was going to go over and hunt at a different friend's place, and they saw this deer, and they sent it to me. like, look at this stud three-year-old. And I was like, man, that deer looks like he's 17 to me. (laughs) (laughs) And and I know that because I had an opportunity. I, I was basically turned loose with a bow on a ranch, and they were like, you know, hey here's your stipulations. This is what you can shoot. You know, if, if he's older than six and, you know, as long as he's not a 200 inch deer, you know, shoot him. Well, I saw this monster deer and I'm like, yeah, he was a three-year-old. And I got back and, and, you know, the old guys were like, no, 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 that was, and they showed me. Well, anyway, I, I don't know how old this deer is. Um, I, I think he's older than 10. And I think that he was probably a Boone and Crockett deer at one point because he scored 143 that old. Um, and 
you know, he's missing. He only had two of his front teeth on the bottom jaw. Are you still there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm listening. Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. Man, that is uh, a I, that's a a wild old deer to be missing all those teeth like that. Man, he's been running around breeding does for well, a long this, time. See this place, when I you know I'll tell you this because it won't that way it won't go on air. But this place, the interesting thing about hunting it is one, it hadn't been hunted for about five years. It's this property back there, but it backs up to the East Ranch which the East was originally part of the King Ranch, and they split it back in, you know, 1890 or whatever. Well, the East people didn't like hunting, and so it's never been hunted. Oh 180,000 acres of prime South Texas whitetail. So this place borders. So you don't know what's coming off of it. Well, you know, um, before that, because uh, they had they, they had some veterans. It's it's a guy. They just were having some veterans come out and hunt. And Nick Munt from Bone Collector, his dad's a, a Vietnam veteran, so he was out there hunting. And I've got a group in, and they drive. They're like, "Hey, can we bring his deer over so you can age him?" And so I go to open the mouth, and I'm like, "Man, this deer's old," you know. And they're like, "No, we think he's like six or seven. So I go to open the the bottom jaw and. When I'm pulling the jaw down to age his teeth, I accidentally pull out one of the teeth. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm talking with like, you know, a half a pound of pressure. (laughs) Oh, man, that's like unheard of. I I mean, and so, you know, I actually saved the jaw bones and everybody's like, oh, you should send it to that deeraging.com. Well, I can't. Neither one of them have their two front teeth, and that's what they use to age. Because with me, I'm using teeth wear, which there's some imperfection there. There's no, you know, a deer across the highway that has a lot of gravel. It could look, you know, a year or two older by teeth wear. Or, you know, there's times where you get one jaw says one side and one thing and one side says the other. Um. But these two deer were so old, and what I said, man, I'll go after that deer. And so they were like, yeah, you know, if you want to go after him. In the three days it took me to go after him, this old deer was still fighting for does and broke off his brow time. (laughs) Good for him. (laughs) I hope we can all go out that way. (laughs) And so, you know, uh, but it, it was a really fun hunt. It was. Um, you know, we, we went down there a couple of times and it was like, it's a salt flap and there's just deer traveling through there. It's, it's insane. And, um, we didn't see them for like, you know, it was like three days. And, and then it was that one morning I look over and there's a deer. I mean, we're in a pop-up blind, like 20 yards from it. I'm like, Oh my God, that's him. That's him. And, you know, we're, it, we had this this thing in South Texas this year where it was like in the mornings, you could see about 20 more minutes before it was legal to shoot. Like, so we had to sit there and watch him and hope he didn't chase anything off. And, and you know, I had, there was a bunch of does out there. So I just kind of had to sit there with the gun at the ready and wait to get a clear shot. It, it took a while. 
and good on you. But That's you know, just, for uh, me, I mean, I just a, a deer that old to me is as much of a. I mean, I, a rarity is, is shooting a book deer, and I'll I'll base put everything I've got that that deer at one time scored probably at one seventy or above. Oh, it had to, right? As big and heavy as it was as an old deer and as good as it scored, uh, like, in, you know, being over 10 years old, that's unheard of. Um, yeah, well, and, uh, a lot of – I've taken a page out of – I got video of, I'll send you where uh, his knees and his legs are, like, bent back in, like, from him walking away from us. It's, you're like, oh, my God, that dude's got arthritis. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's the perfect one to take out too. I've taken a page from you, uh, the the whitetail hunters in the woods that are really working hard to age these deer and and then harvest them. You know when they're you know in their prime or past their prime, like in that case. But yeah, as you start to look at more and more of them, you can start to see those characteristics of an older animal. You know the um, like like mule deer is probably the same as whitetails, where their their chest starts to get big or their uh, their belly starts to hang down, and they start to get a sway in their back. And I've started to really recognize it because I think when I first started. I was just trying to judge age on the antler size or the antler characteristics. But once you can really start to look at the body and like the knees, like you're talking about going in and the arthritis, but once you can start to see those characteristics, then you can tell when those deer are going six, seven, eight, nine years old. And it's not a perfect science, but I can definitely tell an older deer and I can tell a good genetic three or four year old that I need to let grow up. Yeah, and, and, you know, what I say to people because they're like, oh, it's all about big antlers. And I'm like, well, no, because I would rather shoot a crappy seven-year-old than I would a, a three-year-old. I, I can still enjoy seeing that three-year-old without killing him because in my head, I'm like, I'm going to keep this guy a secret for three years. <laughs> <laughs> Genetics and um, age, right? And, and you know, I, I – I, um, you know, I I hear people say, "Oh, well, culling doesn't work," and oh, and it's like, well, I, I would disagree because part of culling is letting letting your you know your your better deer live. And if I want to let some deer live to or try to let deer live to be six or seven, then I sure as hell would rather than be big ten points than crappy six points. Yeah, all and and so you know that that's what I, I think people get culling all mixed up and 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 they, you know because they'll take just like with anything we do we they'll take one sentence out of it well that doesn't work I can disprove that well you know hey if I if I've got a place that I can manage it and it's you know I do the same with mule deer if I say hey let's shoot our four by fours at four years old and let's shoot our five by fives at six. Over time, the trends are going to happen that you're going to have more five-by-fives. It's just math. Oh, absolutely. Well, and I see it in practice in, like, um, in places that I live, like here in Montana. Our eastern Montana mule deer, uh, it's been known for years that there, there's good public land mule deer hunting out there. And the populations are so strong out there. You know, there's so many mule deer, but they, le- they give out – 
so many general tags to out of states and in states and then they let us hunt them during the rut with a rifle and so a lot of the good genetics (laughs) exactly right like no management in place so the genetics there have, have just been shot out so much that yeah, it's tough to find a four by four mule deer, or like maybe what you're calling a five by five, a four by four up top with eye guards, you know, because there's those are the bucks that guys want to shoot, and so those get shot out of the herd, and so there's a lot of three by fours and a lot of big three points, and you can just see that that the genetics that they've shot out a lot of the good genetics in that place. And you know, I had uh, last year we were rattling and rattled in this amazing four year old deer. Uh, which I had to hold everybody off this year as a five-year-old because as a six-year-old, that's when we hit our jump. This deer has a chance to hit Boone and Crockett next year. And, and you know, like I said, I mean, I, I rattled him in, and instantly it's me and uh, or the camera guy and I were like, oh, you know, you just – it looks like a four-year-old. You're just like, oh, man, yeah, he's, he's, he's beautiful. And we said, you know, we didn't have to kill that deer to enjoy that experience, but still – I mean, there were people on social media that were just like, oh, my God, I can't believe he passed that buck and then shot the crappy older buck. And it's like, you know, that's what we did. And in it for the we'll long be game. better for it in the long run. Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. In it for the long game. Um, well, yeah, it's uh, like I say, it's just a, a way of thinking. But, yeah, I've, I'm sure your places down there um, are reaping the benefit of your years of management and then um, – you know, just and then your... you got the neighbors that that have the same mindset. So everybody, you know, collectively behind me is fifteen thousand acres, and then there's twenty four thousand acres, and then there's another two thousand, and then there's three thousand acres, and everybody's doing the same thing. Now, granted, there's probably some mistakes that happen on all of them, but in general, the mindset is is all the same. Man, that's awesome. Your place has to be just action down there for deer hunting. It has to be really fun when you get a day to go out and go hunt and just knowing, you know, what could be around out there. That's, that's the thing because you know at any minute, you know. And, and I think when you know that, it also helps you in holding off those younger bucks. Uh, you know, yesterday morning we were hunting and in 35 minutes sitting in this one little it's like a travel corridor like i'm i've got a blind tucked back and uh and i mean we had 12 different bucks come in and there was one buck that was a possible shooter and he was because we kind of have a third rut down here with the fawns that come into heat uh right now and so there's all these young three-year-old bucks running around and this old buck, I see him in the brush. He comes in because I've got a little food plot right there and what and some uh, some feed I've got out. He sees these bucks. He's like, "Oh hell no, I ain't coming in there. I got I got I'm laid up with this lady right now." But you know, there's no thought to want to shoot any of these deer because I know at any moment what can you know come out. Oh, that's fun, Josh. Yeah. Uh... Well, it's just your your management practices paying off. Um, that Texas country looks pretty cool down there. I think I'm going to make a trip down there. Have you? Uh, do you guys have any uh, Audad off your ranches you hunt, or have you hunted those down there? I'm Not sure. me. Um, I had a place last year in the Panhandle that has, I mean, huge Audad body wise. I've been talking to uh, Ike and uh, Scott. Uh, 
one of my guys has a uh, a place down by Del Rio. Still has a really really big horned rams. The bodies aren't quite as big, but it is some rough country. Rough. Man, that's uh, a that's a good entry level to sheep hunting. I had a uh, a buddy that I met, that I met that I've got to know a little bit, and he invited me to come down to April and has a big ranch. I'm not even sure exactly where. I know I'm flying down to San Antonio, but I'm not sure where the ranch sits. But I'm excited. I've been seeing some pictures of that country you're talking about in uh, the like the Panhandle and whatnot. Just those those mm-hmm. huge canyons and all that uh, the the exposed red rock and just really rough, rugged country. It looks like. So, and that stuff's good to hunt because really without that, you got to get above them. And that country's high, but all the karst, you know, geography in the rough country is below you. So you get to start high um, oh. and, and kind of hunt down because that you really need to be able to do that with those out at it. Because, you know, what they'll do is they'll kind of get about three quarters up. Uh, so they're looking down, but they're kind of keeping their eyes up, too. For, for lions and whatnot, but I mean, they're mainly looking down, but my wife shot a monster uh, last year. That place, it was just, it, it was tough to house all of us, you know, it was nine and a half hours away, and just with all the kids, we just decided to not get back on it this year. We we got enough, you know, to do, but it was it was a really fun hunt for her, and she really wanted an owl dad, and, you know. Got it. Oh, that's really cool. Nine and a half hours away. Uh, boy, Texas is a big state. That's amazing. It could be nine and a half hours away when you're in the same state. Remember, the distance from El Paso to Dallas is the same distance from Dallas to Sioux Falls, oh, South that, Dakota. That is nuts. <laughs> I have to write that statistic down. That is crazy, John. There's the, Texas Monthly did a a thing that compared distances and it it's pretty crazy. Uh, let me see if I can find it and I'll send it to you. Oh, that is wild. Huh? Yeah. It looks like some rough, rugged country, but, um, yeah, I'm excited to go give it a try. I like what you're saying about those Rams being three quarter up the hill in that Canyon country where you can glass and be above them. It's going to make stalking way easier than, you know, in the flats or when they have that, that upper hand because they're sheep. And so I imagine their vision is just off the hook that they use their vision a lot. It's to... stupid. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it, 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 and, and they'll be with so many U's that, you know, they'll, okay. So if you've got, let's, let's say easy, it's just like a little hill coming out. They'll circle that whole damn hill. And, you know, there'll be a hundred sets of eyes like looking out and, Ain't no way you're getting up on that. Uh, no, way. <laughs> no way. No, they just see movement. They just got you, right? Yeah, and one of them jumps up, and the whole, you know, it's gone. Huh. What What a cool species. So um, they're an introduced species that now just live uh, wild in, in, in Texas and that. Uh, where do Audad come from again, Josh? Do you remember? Uh, they come from um, – uh, Africa, I think Morocco, e- Egypt, and some places like that. Oh, I think you're um, right. Yep, that makes sense. And I don't remember what uh, what the reason was, but they were brought to West Texas, I believe, somewhere after World War One. Um, 
And, you know, I, I don't know why, because they're not for meat, because they're, they're horrible to eat. Um, but, you know, they were introduced, even, even places in Africa introduced them outside of there. But um, if you go back and read, you know, old Jack O'Connor stories, um, uh, you know, he, he was actually hunting them in their home territory. There's some pretty interesting, uh, I don't know, are you a Jack O'Connor fan? That's what I grew up Absolutely, reading. Absolutely, yes. But, yeah. But, yeah, and then um, along with uh, all the, the hunting you do in Texas and all the stuff you take advantage of there, I know you're really into the whitetails. But you've been traveling a lot lately. I love hearing your traveling stories. The last time I had you on the podcast, you told that story about that red stag and up so close. Um, so, so in the last year, where have you gone, Josh? Well, uh, gosh, we, you know, my wife and I went to Costa Rica uh, for our uh, anniversary, and uh, I've been to Costa Rica before, but you know, we we kind of kicked back and relaxed and really the, the only other travel we've done is, is within texas and of course we go to colorado every summer um with my where my in-laws live and um you know i, I just love traveling i always have uh, i, I kind of always said like I, I almost feel at home in places that i don't belong um and you know of course, having kids now and being a fan, you know, I don't go to I don't go to the far into the earth anymore. <laughs> but um, you know, I just I really enjoy traveling. I really enjoy eating the food in other places. I, I still, uh, when I got back from Iraq, my wife and I went to Peru for a month, and I, I mean, I love food. I love cooking. I love. I, I've never had food like we had at every single meal in Peru. I would fly to Peru if I had the money just to eat lunch. Like, <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's it's insane. And uh, like, uh, the <laughs> the only okay, everything that you got was just you know so amazing. There was this shrimp. There was you know the ceviche. I, I was eating ceviche like two times a day, and. You know, you would be in one part where you'd be by the, uh, the the ocean and you'd be eating, you know, mainly things from the seas. You'd have some shrimp, you'd have fish, you'd have mahi sometimes and different different fish. And then you, you might travel up uh, into the mountains a little bit and be by a river, and they had crawfish there. So you'd be crawfish ceviche. And then you get in the mountains, and it's ceviche made out of trout. Um, but... You know, I, I'll try just about anything, and and so we had been eating all this food in Peru and really, really enjoying it. And in Peru, the sort of delicacy is guinea pig. So my wife's birthday, we're like, well, God, if everything else is this good, and they're calling guinea pig a delicacy, well, then, geez, then let's go for it. So it was her birthday, and we ordered it. And uh, they, you know, it's a skinned guinea pig, and they bring it out on this platter after they cook it to show it to you. And it's got like corn all around it. So then they 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 take it back to the kitchen and they cut it all up. And like I said, I've tried a lot of weird stuff, and it tasted like a, if you imagine a really really tough chicken that's been overcooked that had a fishy smell and taste to it that's that's what guinea pig was like for me so you know 
that one was not as enjoyable as the rest of the food. <laughs> I was gonna say that doesn't sound uh, it doesn't sound great, Josh. But I'm with you that that traveling and uh, immersing yourself in those different cultures and trying the different food and and you think that you experience a lot here in the states. But boy, when you start traveling abroad, you realize like how different their culture really is, and uh, there is nothing better than getting that that local. Food like you talked about that ceviche everywhere you went, and when you went in the mountains, it was trout ceviche. But the, just like eating what they have there, the the fruits and vegetables and the the meat that they have, um, it doesn't get any better than that. And and what a, a fun time to be able to to soak that in the the culture. And then for me, like I'm not, I don't like traveling to the different cities as much, but I love seeing like the oh, yeah. remote mountain ranges they have, or the rivers they have, or the beauty that that different countries have. So I'm with you that, that traveling is such a fun experience, but yeah, it sounds like, uh, that didn't quite work out on that. The, what they consider the delicacy, uh, overburnt <laughs> chicken that tastes like fish. <laughs> Man, it, it, it was bad. Uh, the only thing I've had worse than that was, uh, in Africa. One time I got tricked into thinking that when you got a kudu, you had to eat it balls and they cooked it on a grill, like a hot dog and, Oh, yeah, it was pretty bad. Um, but yeah, I, I, cities. I, when I when I travel, I, I can spend maybe one or two days there, and, and I'm like you. I want to be out in the remote. Um, I, I probably my my best experience is really when I was in college. I got the opportunity to go uh, study and travel in India and Nepal, and you know, of course, Mumbai and New Delhi, who had some big cities. Um, it's just not my flavor. Just like New York City is not my flavor. Um, you, you know, uh, my brother-in-law and you know all, all his kids, they went to New York City for Christmas vacation. It was like a big gift. I'm like, that's that's punishment for me. Um, but you know, being up in the mountains in in the Hindu Kush and in the Himalaya, it man, it's crazy. I mean, and. Uh, I went to go around this one corner up to to see the the north face of Everest. It's the only place you can go to see the north face of Everest without being in China or Tibet. I shouldn't say China. Um, and you know, for a week, I got I got sick, so I couldn't I couldn't make the summit. Um, there was there was a couple other mountains there that I wanted to summit and whatnot, but I, I, I had gotten sick in that altitude I just couldn't heal and, and we were sleeping at over 16,000 feet and I mean it, it's amazing what that does to your body and you're really thinking hey I'm, I'm sleeping at a place that is higher than anywhere in the, in the continental U.S. I'm sleeping higher than Mount Whitney just hanging out and um, you know I was acclimated I'd been there for a long time but at that height I would like roll over and like maybe close a nostril on my pillow in my sleeping bag and feel like I was suffocating. But, man, I wouldn't trade those, those times, you know, for anything. Uh, I don't know if I have the, the stupid youth in me to just go bounding up mountains that I shouldn't be bounding up anymore. But, um, no, I, I, I'm with you. I love the mountains. Man, uh, yeah, what great – it, it must have given you great perspective as a young man, too, like, um, you know, seeing those cities and how other people live, but just seeing a different place and seeing those mountains that stretch, you know, above the death zone and sleeping at 16,000. Uh, 
you know, we we also well, as you know, probably better than most, being in the military, but we we uh, we grow through challenge, you know, and so like challenging yourself as a young man and climbing all those mountains and sleeping at sixteen thousand and having your your health and safety in your own hands, man, that had to be exciting. It had to be an adventure the whole time, everywhere you went. Um, what a what a great experience as a young man. You know, there uh, <laughs> it was. One time, I, and I was in great shape, like, and, you know, I, I ran track some in college and, and I, I mountain bike race a lot. And so I got in really good shape and I'd been there, uh, it was a couple months before I actually went up to Everest Space Camp. And I was like, man, I am big. Like I am, you know, and I'm passing all these kind of tourists who are, are showing up who really are not supposed to be going. And I'm just zooming by them and just like, God. I'm tearing this mountain up and I'm on this pitch. This is like right when we're leaving. Um, uh, I think, what was the airport's name? Uh, oh gosh, I can't remember. But anyway, it's where you fly in to kind of get set up to go up to, to Everest Space Camp. And I'm moving along and all of a sudden I just hear like, excuse me, mister. And there's a dude who's coming by me at at least 10 times the pace that I'm walking <laughs> that I think I'm, uh, you know, and he's probably four foot five. He's wearing flip flops, homemade flip flops, and he has this backpack, and it's like a, a piece of wood that's coming down to like his hamstrings, and it goes all the way up past his shoulders, and then there's a strap, it's like a leather strap that comes around, and so he's he's got that around his forehead. And he's carrying, and it's it's just nothing but cases of coke. I mean, I, I don't know how many cases of Coke are on there. And he's, you know, he's carrying it up because you get up far enough. You'd be amazed at how much people will pay for a Coke on top of a mountain. <laughs> They'll pay $5 a Coke. And so these guys would carry these things up. But, I mean, I was so humbled because here I thought, like, I, this is the best shape I've ever been in my life. And these guys are passing me. Their lungs are just on a different level than I can even – you know, comprehend living there in that environment all that time. But yeah, it, it was, it was pretty humbling to watch guys on flip flops zoom past me. Pass you, you smoking know, a me cigarette. And nice, <laughs> yeah, me and my nice Loas <laughs> and my fancy backpack. And, you know. uh, yeah, those Sherpas are just amazing, right? They just grow up in that high altitude. And then, you know, I think they've just evolved from thousands of years of living in those mountains to where, yeah, they're just built for the mountains and no matter you know we can show up in professional athlete shape and those guys will still uh, beat us up to the top of the mountain so yeah that had to be some wild perspective to see those guys and how they can climb mountains you know and i'll tell you uh, i'll tell you kind of a, a bummer of a story but i think it's, a, it's something for us to li- think about um as hunters uh mountaineering what, whatever but one small mistake no matter how good you are can cost you your life if you're in bear bear country and you make one small mistake you know it, it, that's all it takes and um when when i was up there at that place where i was telling you we were, we were sleeping at like uh, sixteen thousand feet it's in the gokio valley and during when we were there there were some everest expeditions going on and, and generally what was considered to be the best climber in the world uh you know he was a sherpa he'd been up there um you know, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I know he set the uh, record for like the fastest summit. This guy had been 
you know, up there tons and tons and tons. And they were in a tent up at it was camp two or three. So this is, his name was uh, Babu Chiri. And he had actually spent, uh, you know, it's like the, the record for the most hours on the summit of Everest without any oxygen. Um, and I, I think that record still stands. He had the fastest Everest ascent of like 16 hours. And, you know, he had done the, the summit, uh, I think, over 10 times. But, I mean, this guy was the best. And so he was up at like uh, camp two or three. I'm not really sure. I can't really remember where it was, but um, he knew better. He was the best in the world. And there was a beautiful sunset. And he got out of his tent and he didn't have his crampons all on that ice. And, you know, at, at night where it, that, that stuff's been in the sun, it starts to get a little bit melty. And then all of a sudden it hits that chill. It gets slick. And um, while taking a picture of the, Sunset slipped and fell into a crevasse and died. And, you know, that kind of stuff, we we have to, when we're out there, it's those little things like that that, you know, we know better of. And we kind of say, yeah, we'll get away with it. I know I've done it. I always try to think back, you know, about that. I mean, that guy was the pinnacle of mountain climbing. And one little mistake that he knew better of killed him. Man, you're so right. Um, yeah, and as you know, we want to live a fulfilled life, and we want to have adventure in our life, and it's what makes us feel alive. And so, you know, we can't just sit inside our homes and protect ourselves like we have to go out. But through going out, you know, you we are taking on risk, and just like that guy, man. I mean, that hits home, like you say, one little tiny mistake, and the the best climber in the world plummets to his death because. You know, he hopped out without his crampons. And I know exactly what you're talking about on that ice and snow when that sun dips down. Like I've seen it in New Zealand before where it was easy traversing to go across when it was warm and you could get your footsteps in. But when that stuff freezes, uh, uh, you're almost stranded there. You cannot make it across, uh, you know, unless you have your crampons or whatever. But, man, it's a it's a dangerous world out there. Yeah, you know, when I had a, we we did the second time I went to New Zealand, we got dropped off way way back into public land in, in helicopters, and we just stayed there. You know, made a tent camp down in the valley, and you know, the the there was four of us, um, and you know, the the chopper could only take, or actually, there was five of us. I'm sorry, so we could only take. It had to do two trips. So the the, the pilot was like, "Look, when I got to go back." you all want me to just drop you off up on the ridge and you can hunt your way back to camp that night. We're like, yeah, it's great. So he drops us off on this ridge and he's like, yeah, you know, you'll be right down here. Y'all can just sit up here. All you got to do is drop down the mountain when you're ready to go back to camp. Well, so we start hunting around. We saw a few tar and it's starting to get dark. And, you know, that, that ice that you're talking about had been in the sun and all of a sudden it started freezing up. Well, I can see camp and we go to get on that ice and we're like, holy crap. Uh, we can't go down that. I mean, it, it, it was sure death. Like, cause it was just an ice shelf that went forever and ever. And I mean, we ended up having to go around the mountain and God, I don't think we got back to camp till like 10, 11 o'clock. And the guys that came second were further than that. And I mean, it was like two o'clock in the morning and man, it was, I, that, that could have been a whole lot worse than, than what it turned out to be. But luckily I'm scared enough of that kind of ice that, you know, and I was with a 
a Kiwi guy too. That's a big mountaineer, and he was just like, "Oh, absolutely, no way." Man, um, well, like you say, because we could see camp right there. That's <laughs> so horrible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and, and those little decisions too. They just, um, you know, they directly tie to your safety and coming back, you know, home safe and the whole deal. And so you just got to make smart decisions. And sometimes they're not black or white. Like sometimes it's a gray area whether or not you can make it down that ice or not. Or uh, like you say with bears and. I, I think it pertains to life too. Like, um, you know, even driving down the road on icy conditions and looking for semi trucks and, you know, or if a wreck was to happen and you're pulled off the side of the road, just to be ready with the, the right moves to make to hop out with your flashlight if, you know, and, and flag cars down to let them know that you're stalled out or whatever the case. But I, man, I think you always, got to be trying to think clearly and and especially like on those backcountry hunts or or traveling to and from hunts or wherever you're at but just making those smart decisions because you never know when one of those little micro decisions will uh, uh determine your fate in in your future and like you know there's been a lot of hunters like roy roth was this great bow hunter that that bow hunted and harvested a bunch of different sheep up in the these gnarly alaska mountains and you know, he fell to his death at uh, uh, mid-40s, you know, on a sheep hunt, you know, and just took a slip, and all of a sudden he was down the mountain. So it's something we all need to be conscientious about. You know, and, and Mark, uh, the guy that I was I was hunting with, I mean, he's, you know, really experienced mountaineer and, and guide over there and a good friend of mine, and he was telling me a story. Um, he had a, a buddy's dad that was hunting tar in that same range and killed the tar, was bringing it down the mountain and it was one of those nights with no moon no loom and he slipped and fell and dropped his uh flashlight and pulled out his headlamp as a backup and the batteries were dead and it, you know he could not see to get down this mountain and he about froze to death because he had to sleep there that night because there's there's no getting down when you can't see man Yep. Yeah, about freeze to death. I can see that. Uh, I always carry extra batteries in my backpack because of that, because uh, it seems like those um, – I've got a lock now on my headlamp where I can lock it off if I hold it, but it seems like those headlamps are notorious for turning on in your pack and, and running down your batteries. <laughs> and, and then, like you say, with no light, it gets downright dangerous, and you may think you need to make it back to camp, but like in some of this rugged mule deer country and stuff – if it's dark like that and you're trying to traverse a lot of miles up above 10 or 12,000 feet, you can get yourself in some sketchy positions in those cliffs where, you know, daylight, you can navigate through it and pick the right shoot or the right approach. But in the dark, you can end up getting yourself on the edge of some cliffs and past your skill level. So I'm, I'm with you. Just always need to be thinking clear and, uh, Safety is the first three rules of backcountry hunting, aren't they? You just got to keep yourself safe and make the right decisions. And, and, you know, you think of all your equipment and all that, and it can all be for, for naught, all your skill, just because two AAA batteries ran out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. <laughs> well, and, and along with gear, like that, the, the swagger bipods and shooting sticks you make, like how many guys are showing up on these these hunts, you know, where they they have so much money and time invested and training invested and they show up with a rifle and there's no rest around to be seen for miles. Like a lot of that New Zealand tar country, good luck getting a rest in that country. You know, there's nothing up. There's no trees. There's nothing up there. And, and so, you know, that yeah, it's 
it's horrendous to shoot in. And, and I remember um, the, the two times I went, I, I had, which, you know, are now some of our competitor products, but it was way before I was with Swagger and whatnot. And, and I had one of each of them. And um, the first time, you know, it's in my backpack, I'm climbing, right? And that's what, you know, I, that's why I still like our original Hunter series because it's there. It, it, I know if I lay down on the ground, I can pull it out and get ready and get set up. The first time I'm there, it happens. The tar is there. I don't have time to get it out of my backpack. I, I, it's like I got him staring at me. Here, okay, here it is. And, um, you know, I, I make you know, some makeshift rest out of a, a rock in my backpack. And, you know, and, and luckily it wasn't too far of a shot. But um, the second time, I remember specifically there was, there was two tar that I could have shot earlier on. And I could not get a steady rest. And, you know, it, it wasn't because the product was bad that I was using. It was because it was at such an extreme angle up that I could not get the rest of my body because I was limited by the flexibility or, or lack of flexibility on the front end. And so, you know, I, I couldn't shoot those tar. But I, I am a guy that, you know, I have, I'll admit, I have forgotten my shooting sticks in the truck multiple times. I've broken them in my backpack. I've gotten them stuck in my backpack to where I couldn't get them out because of the animal situation in front of me. So that's why I, I, I like the Hunter series on the front, ready to go, that I can deploy instantly. That's that's my preference. I, I'm with you there. I and it's um it is a more accurate way to shoot with it connected to your rifle like that. And um you know, and you've built such a, a lightweight um you know bipod that also has those extendable legs so you can shoot off the kneeling or the sitting position and then you know you stated that guys shoot off their pack and so a lot of guys rely upon their pack as their rest a pack is not like those shooting sticks and furthermore i like to use the pack on the back elbow or use the 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 pack as another brace to to really get me stable to shoot but you know i live and die by the rest and i live and die by the the swagger products but like i had my family show up you know in my Montana this year and um you know they showed up with two rifle tags they're really excited to hunt bucks and and there's not a shooting stick or a bipod in the group and I'm just wondering like a lot of our shots out there are longer 300 yard shots and maybe stretching to 400 I'm just thinking what the heck are you guys gonna do out there so I ended up loaning out my shooting sticks quite a bit and they ended up filling out on bucks but both of them shot their bucks off sticks and and neither one brought one on this you know, not that it's a once in a lifetime hunt, but it's their big hunt for the year. Just so many guys are walking around with their rifle, and even my my dad, he knows better, but he shows up with his chintzy sticks, and I finally have him a swagger put on his rifle, and it's the reason he killed his deer this year. But he'd show up with these cheesy shooting sticks that hell, you couldn't get a a good rest off him if you tried anyway. They're so flimsy, and um, so so like uh, guys are still making that mistake out there. And when we put so much into our hunts, it's gonna come down to making that shot. Every successful hunt comes down to making that shot, and it is not easy with a rifle. It's easier said than done, and we can sit here right now and talk about 
shooting a rifle and at 200 yards they should be dead every time and 300 yards. But I've seen guys shoot and you've seen guys shoot. That is not the way it happens. It is tough to execute a good shot under an intense amount of pressure. And just the more stable you know, rest you can get with the with the sticks or like the mounted bipod, which I really like of yours. Um, just, just the be- it's just going to create more opportunities and you're going to make good on the opportunities you get. Like it, it's just a it's such a huge deal, like like in the grand scheme of being successful out west is just having that good rest. And so like guys that are planning rifle hunts this year, man, they they need to get make sure that they're they're. You know, a lot of guys will practice off a bench and where everything's clamped in, and that is the most accurate way to dial in your rifle. But after that, you need to start practicing all your shooting positions. You're you're prone, you're kneeling, you're sitting, and try to shoot through two, three hundred yards off those shooting positions that you'd use in the field. It is not easy, but if you get proficient at it and you have the right gear like like then you're the 100 percent guy walking around where if you get an opportunity at that tar you're gonna knock them down so i just think it's so important for guys planning their hunts for the next year it's so funny that you said that because i just literally posted a video to the swagger facebook page talking about this and and really it kind of came up in a conversation in um John Collins, who's a, a big predator hunter out of Kentucky, he'd come down and hunted with me in South Texas. And we were talking about rattling and the positions. And, you know, you don't know where the buck's coming out from different angles. And he had uh, kind of put a question up on on his page, like, you know, what do you think the long shot is in hunting? And it was, you know, kind of crazy. People were like, oh, it's 600. Well, okay, that is a long shot. But that's in the prone. Okay, and you start getting to a kneeling position and a seated position, and that's exponentially harder. And then you add a 45-degree angle to the left or the right. And what I've seen for years, years and years and years of, of being out, whether it be in the West or in Texas, is I get hunters that come in that have shot their butts off at the range, but they've never shot on a pair of shooting sticks whether it be Swaggers or whether it be any other brand. And, you know, in the military, we always try to train as we fight, right? And that's where we, we were having a problem even in the military. The only way people ever shot were in the prone, uh, supported position, or in a foxhole. There hadn't been a foxhole war since World War One. <laughs> but when I first got in the Army, that's how they were training guys to fight. And it, it took... Um, you know, Iraq to come into where we started doing urban movement and practicing, you know, urban uh, combat, uh, quick fire, bringing it up and, and how to get in positions to actually shoot like you were going to be fighting in combat because we sure as hell weren't going to be digging foxholes in a city in Iraq. So, um, you know, what I, I've even seen it in bow hunting, you know, and we don't have trees really where we can put bow stand so guys would always come down and they practice in their backyard standing up standing up standing up and then they get in a pop-up blind well they've never even shot sitting down out of a chair and and it's very different and it's very different and that is not something you want to be shooting something differently than you're used to when something comes out that makes your heart pound and you know i i 
I think uh, in, in the video, like we, we talked about, like, look, you know, do I want to go out and fire a whole bunch of rounds out in the South Texas rut in the middle of the day? No, but I can still practice getting in those shooting positions and find out, hey, what do I got to do to get my knee up uh, to, to guard that floating elbow? What do I got to do? You got to go out there and you got to practice them. Um, the number one thing that I see people make a mistake in a kneeling position is uh, it seems to be everybody wants to drop down and put the, the knee that is up to be on the wrong hand. And if you try putting, you know, the knee up, like I see a lot of people make the mistake, and having it balancing the elbow that's holding the fore end of your gun, see how stable that is. Then flip knees to where the knee is supporting the elbow on your trigger finger and notice how much more stability you have in that shot. It's exponentially more, and it will create so much more success, you know, for, for, for you when you have to shoot in those kneeling positions. And, you know, for, for me, um, and I think for a lot of other people, why the Swaggers are, are so popular is that you can get in, and with that flexibility, you can lean back or lean forward and be able to lock that floating elbow in because that floating elbow is the culprit for uh, quite a few missed shots out in the field. Oh, you're so spot on. Yeah, that knee to the right elbow, uh, that's a great tip that I wouldn't think about on the kneeling position. And and yeah, you're right, that floating elbow, it's just getting a rest on that, that back elbow if you can get it on your knee. Or sometimes like in the sitting position, I like to get my pack underneath it, you know, and really get locked in. Um, well, Josh, one more time, like uh, everything you said was so spot on. What did you say again when you said uh, uh, practice like battle or what was your saying there? I want to remember that and write that down. Train, train as you fight. Train as you fight. Yeah, you know, and and I, I for, for this industry now, you got to put in, you know, parentheses, uh, you know, hunt. So train as you fight slash hunt, whatever. But it's, you know, you, you really need to do that. And, um, you know, if, if you're banging steel out to a thousand yards out of the prone sweet that's great man and and keep doing those fundamentals and keep doing that but let's make sure that you can also make 150 200 yard shot in a seated position and all you got to do is practice getting in that position because you do not want to be getting in that position um, without the muscle memory of knowing how to do it then there's a big boone and crockett buck out there because you're not going to do it, you know? Oh, it's so true. Well, and that's what I run my kids through, the gauntlet of shooting positions and getting set and acquiring their target and then squeeze We do a ton of dry fire practice. And you're right, as you're walking around the field, you need to practice that as well because even guys that are really seasoned hunters, you throw some rough terrain in there and they haven't been practicing their shooting positions and all of a sudden you throw that trophy up at 300 yards. And just like you were stating, like you can be really good in the prone position, but you're 100 or 200 yards less in the you know in the sitting position and maybe another 100 yards less in a kneeling position so you you got to kind of know where your limits are there but you have to practice those positions and so even as you're walking around in the woods just to get on a target and, and like you say not be firing a bunch of rounds where you're hunting 
but you can unload your gun and dry fire on a rock that sits at 300 yards across the canyon just to get yourself set up in a like a quick timeline and i i'm with you like on a bow like um you know it's one thing to make that shot in your backyard and your flip-flops but practice those shooting positions the up and the downhill practice the kneeling position practice holding your draw for 30 seconds or a minute and then executing or you know uh uh you know ex- exactly what you're saying you know you just um you you practice I mean, real you life really want to get crazy <laughs> you know um you can well uh, you can always put a dime on the tip of your your muzzle and, and make sure you're practicing good trigger squeeze that's you know really more for inexperienced shooters or, or kids or whatnot just to make sure they're not you know pulling the trigger too much but making sure that the gun's stable, they, they pull the trigger back. But, I mean, I may be a little bit psycho, but I still practice occasionally by doing a whole bunch of push-ups and then trying to go and shoot. You know, and we used to call that stress shooting. We would run and hike and in between things, you know, do that. And um, it, It's a good way for me, personally, I don't know. Uh, my, my wife probably wouldn't like doing this, but I, it, it trains me. And it gives me muscle memory and memory of how to calm my breath down and take that shot. Because, you know, even if you just do, you know, 20, 30 push-ups, all of a sudden that breathing's up, your your heart rate's up, your muscles are tired, and you're trying to get in position. And it just helps me um, simulate when my heart rate's up, uh, you know, a big bull or a big buck out there. You know, you've almost got to get that, that timing where your crosshairs are going up and down with your breath because um, it is a lot more of a, uh, what am I trying to say? It's a lot more of an issue to deal with when your heart rate's up than when you're just sitting there hitting paper. You're spot on. I do the same thing. I do sprints or push-ups or uh, <laughs> like just get that heart rate up. It, um, you're so It's the only thing that simulates the buck fever that you'll feel shooting at an animal. And we'd all like to be calm as the backside of the pillow, and that's what we strive for when shooting at an animal. But the truth is, the truth of the matter is, is your heart rate starts racing. You get that fog of adrenaline a little bit, and that those crosshairs just do not aim on a deer like they do on a target. So you have to practice that, you know, try to shoot under those really shaky, bad conditions when your heart's beating a hundred beats a minute and you, you can't get steady. Like, like that's a, that's a great training tool, you know, to, to practice that, get your heart rate up, push-ups, like you say, your, your arms are fatigued too. So your hold isn't as good. That's the best way to practice. Yeah. You know, I was doing that at the ranch a couple of weeks ago. My wife was just like, you're a psycho. <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's just something that, that, that to think about, and you know, I, I'll even mess around with with other people that I'm, I'm, you know, trying to teach to shoot or get ready, and just hey, hurry, 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 let's go, let's go, and you know, adding that stress will will show them that oh, you know, it, it's just a way to get your brain to to focus through the process of getting on target. Uh, fast uh, and and being more effective and efficient in the the limited time you're usually going to have. Yeah, well, and um, missing sucks. Missing is the worst, especially when yeah. you put so much time and effort and money into it. And then, you know, it's not like you still can't have a good experience. But, you know, you go abroad like you do a lot. And, you know, I travel a lot and I prepare for these hunts and I think about my moment that's going to, 
you know, come to fruition, and then you get there and you airball that animal or you miss him, which is easy to do even for a good shooter if you don't pay attention to the details. Man, it just takes you to your lowest low. I mean, it it sinks, you know, not that you can't come back from it, but man, oh man, do you feel discouraged, especially this trophy animal you've been after that you might not get another shot at and you miss or or God forbid you make a bad shot or something, man, it can ruin your whole season. And so that's what the off season is for is, is the preparation to make sure that during the crunch, you're going to perform. And, you know, it all comes back to having a, a good gear, a good rest, and then practicing those scenarios and making sure you're ready. And then you're just walking around the woods with such confidence too. And confidence kills when you believe in your weapon, believe in your abilities. And you know that you've ran a hundred rounds through your rifle you know that everything is dialed in and you know your ranges like when that animal walks out it's just going through the motions you know and you you set up and then make a good shot and um you know that that's what it's all about that's what we're all preparing for but yeah it comes down you um you definitely have to practice and have the right gear or you know you're going to end up missing on a on a one of these once in a lifetime hunts that you've dreamed about your whole life so the the hard work and preparation comes right now yeah, and, and you know, I um, and, and practicing holding uh, for high angle shots and low angle shots are, are something that's really important too. Because you know, with a high angle shot, you, you really have to aim. I know it's counter, you know, intuitive, but you you have to aim lower um, than than you think because you know, one of my last days of tar hunting, uh, the second time, I got in this battle in my mind on where to hold on this tar because I'm at like, you know, it's like 400 and some yards, but it's like a really steep angle up on hill. And I, I got in this battle in my mind and I just would go back and forth. All right, I'm going to hold here. I'm going to hold here. And I'm like, I didn't hold out enough. And, um, I, you know, that, that came from probably, um, being extremely tired because I just hiked up a mountain and, and also just being really pretty dang nervous about this. And uh, I missed. And, you know, luckily I got an opportunity a little bit later. But um, the other thing, the, the other portion that made me miss that shot also, I was so worried about holding, you know, where to hold on the animal with the, the angle and the distance that I completely didn't factor in when. So... Even if I had a held right, I probably would still miss that tar because of the wind. And so, um, you know, just going through those scenarios, it's it's always better to have the, the muscle memory and the, the memory of going through it all when um, when you've done it a whole lot in your practice because it's you've climbed up that mountain. I mean, you're you're just not at 100% capacity inside that brain. That's a really good point. I think like building a good shooting process where wind is part of your checklist. And to tell you the truth, Josh, I've done the same thing. It was just a year ago where I missed one of my biggest bucks because I, I was sitting. There was no wind where I was at, but it was hard left to right. And the deer walked out at 30 yards and then got out on me a bit before he turned broadside and gave me a shot. And I just watched that arrow just drift from left to right and come right in front of his chest. Oh. So I did everything perfect. I executed a good shot, and, and I just didn't think about the wind. And I live 
in one of the windiest places in Montana. I shoot the wind every single day. I know the wind. Just like you know the wind, you know, you train through the military and have such good good insight into shooting. Like, wind is one of your number one factors, I'm sure, when you're practicing with your rifle, when you're shooting at animals. But sometimes those details, when our, when our mind's just racing like that, we don't go through them. And so I think it's important to build, like, a really good shooting process where you check those things off the list as you're shooting. But I made the same day, make, same dang mistake a couple years ago. Um, so, so the Eastman guys have been telling me uh, about this story you have about uh, uh, chasing monkeys and baboons. Um, so, so what trip is this on, Josh? I have every trip I've ever gone on. I've had some sort of negative interaction with a monkey. <laughs> really um okay those monkeys scare the heck out of me i mean uh i haven't really been around too many but but just the strength and power they have like it's not like a human they're 10 times as strong and in the way they attack like going for the genitals and like uh uh for the eyes and stuff those things scare the heck out of me and so you've had quite a few run-ins with these yes <laughs> So, uh, I'll, you know, we'll stick mainly to my uh, India experience, but I seem to attract uh, the ire of monkeys in my travels. And, uh, you know, when I first first got to India, um, I was in Mumbai, and there's this island called Elephanta Island. And, you know, I'm like, we're eating at this restaurant. And I'm like, well, this is cool, but why are there like four guards like standing there with this like long stick and like a whip at the end? I'm like, huh, well, there's monkeys, like, up in the trees, kind of, and this monkey jumps down on somebody's uh, table and just grabs their plate and starts, like, devouring everything on there, and the monkey chaser away guy with his monkey chaser away stick just slaps into action and, you know, pops this monkey and then goes right back to, like, standing at attention, and I was like, holy crap. Well, you know, traveling through the first part and getting to the jungle, I mean, India, India just, it's so vast and it's, it's different of, you know, geography from, from the coast up into the Himalayas. And I mean, I just kept running into these monkeys. And I mean, you'd see these like tourists from New Delhi go to like Rishikesh and there's, there's uh fish food pellets that you can throw into the river. And I watched this dad from a little tea shop one time, uh, he's in this nice polyester slacks and trying to show off for his kids and feeding these monkeys fish pellets. Well, when he ran out of fish pellets, the monkeys didn't take too kindly to that and uh, basically ripped his pants off. And, and, you know, I started going, God, these monkeys are getting rough. So I get up into Dharamsala in, in the Himalayas and um, came home one night and there's a monkey in my bathroom that has my toothpaste and is just eating the toothpaste with it all over its face, just yelling at me. It broke through the window in the bathroom and like, man, but my two, you know, my two big ones came after, uh, you know, I used to have to walk up this hill to, to this uh, hospital that I was kind of working at, um, for, for Tibetan refugees and the monkeys in the trees would literally just crap in their hand and, throw it at you when you walk through all the path. <laughs> so uh, I, I had the chance to uh, interview this um, this sort of retired 
uh, freedom fighter that had been fighting the, the communists. And, and I thought, hey, that'd, that'd be a pretty cool thing to do. And so he tells me where to meet. And um, uh, I go up, and it, it's like this building in this little downtown area. When, it, when I say, I mean, it, you know, Dharamsala is on the side of a Himalaya mountain. It's it's not much. And I opened the door, and I accidentally went the wrong way, and I'm um, uh, on the rooftop. And what I see, I, I, I still, my brain was not prepared. And I'm, I'm trying to think of how to delicately put this on a podcast, but there were probably over 100 monkeys just basically having a rooftop orgy. And as I'm watching this and just, I'm going, oh my God, I got to escape the door. You know, it was like one of those doors that had a hinge just slams right behind me. And it's just like, doom. And every single one of those monkeys turns to me and just looks at me and, oh, I got out of there as fast as I can. But, you know, they, they were really aggressive and I would watch the Tibetan people and the Indians chase them off. And um, I guess the, the real penultimate moment for me was <laughs> when I thought I had, had learned enough monkey skills to chase one off. Um, I was sitting there, I'd gone climbing that morning and, and come back and the Tibetan lady that was running the little inn that we were staying at. Um, she's got the, the baby right there in this kind of carriage. And um, she sort of motions to me, you know, can I watch it while she goes and hangs laundry? Like, yeah. So I'm, I'm on like just this, it's it's on the top of like a first floor that sort of L's out. And then there's some other floors where there are other hotel rooms. So I'm, I'm on the rooftop of this first floor little thing. And she's down in the grass below hanging. Well, this, uh, the laundry, this monkey comes just bounding out and like comes over like towards the baby. And it's like, ah, ah, you know, acting real aggressive. And so I decided I was going to save this baby and chase this monkey off. And I ran at the monkey and just kind of jumped up like that, showed my teeth. And, well, um, and I got to say, these these are not small monkeys. They're pretty, they're pretty large size. Apparently, you're not supposed to show your teeth to a monkey because that sits off this rage. And this monkey charged me and I had to jump off the roof. (laughs) 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 So (laughs) in my head. As I'm falling, I'm like going, oh, my God, my, you know, my coward self just left the baby. So I just land on the ground, just a horrible thud, just right by the Tibetan lady hanging her laundry. And, oh, man, ran back up. Well, um, come to find out, I was I was schooled by the old Tibetan ladies of how to chase away monkeys, and never show my teeth and pick up a rock if I can. And if I, even if I can't pretend like I'm picking up something. So, um, but yeah, I, ever since then I've had run-ins with monkeys and baboons. They seem to always find a way to enter my adventures somehow. That is gnarly, man. Oh man. Those, those monkeys scare the heck out of me just because they're so intelligent too. And then they're just so powerful. Like they can almost rip your limbs from your body. That That's crazy. So you showed your teeth and that thing came right back on you. And pretty soon now you're, mean, you're not chasing the monkey. You're jumping off the edge of the roof. Oh no. And you know, it looks like, you know, he's like, Ugh, I mean, it just got these huge, like, canines coming at you, just growling and making all kinds of sounds. And 
I don't know, in my in my brain, the best option for me was to jump off the road. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. But I've had them, I mean, in Costa Rica, they've gotten into my backpack and stole my chapstick. I mean, I, I just, monkeys are, are, are something else. I, um, you know, in Africa, they're, they, they'll eat those, um, Oh gosh, what are the fruits that the they they ferment on the tree and fall off, and the elephants will actually eat them and get drunk. But yeah, those baboons will will go eat those fruit. You can hear them. It's like they're drunk, laughing at night. And it's like, good lord, man, you monkeys. <laughs> no thanks on that deal. Yeah, I haven't had to deal with any monkeys. You know, I've seen some here and there, but uh, man, oh man, that would that would be spooky. I would not like that. Uh, Hearing those baboons at night or the those monkeys around you, yeah, no thanks on that deal. And have you ever seen like the the national? There's a National Geographic, I think. It, it's either that or or one of the BBC with David Attenborough, but it chronicled these chimps fighting each other, and they, the tribes would go basically annihilate. And and all these chimps, like they're missing an eye, missing a hand. I mean, it's like brutal warfare between them. Um, I, I don't remember the name of it, but I, I've seen it a couple of times, and it'll blow your mind at uh, how vicious. And they they use weapons; they'll pick up rocks and sticks. And it's it's pretty crazy. Man, I've seen something like that. I'm not sure if I've seen that exact one, but no thanks. And then when they, you know, like some of the places you're talking about, when they can get conditioned around people and cities, and then you know they they get food from us, and then they learn how to how to steal from us and take things from us. Like, I, you know, a couple of my only encounters with monkeys is like going into some of those preserves, but you really have to watch out as they will steal stuff from you, like your chapstick or things of that nature. And gosh, I don't know what stops those things. You know, if they decide they, they don't like you, or if they, you show your teeth or make the wrong reaction, I would hate to be on the other side of one of those attacks. Those things are so strong. <laughs> and you go back, what was the, you know, of course, I've always have stuck in my head the the, the Dustin Hoffman movie uh, Outbreak. You know, so uh, you know, of course, you know, everything we've got going on now with viruses. But I'm just like, oh God, I don't, I don't want any anything to do with a monkey bite. No, no, I'm good on that, or monkey meat, or any of that. I think <laughs> I'm good on that. <laughs> well, uh, Josh, man, it's always so fun to chat with you. Uh, the conversation comes so easy. Um, Man, I just absolutely love your product. So uh, you've got your standard Swagger bipod that mounts to the rifle that we've talked about a bunch that I really like. I think you just get the most stable shooting position from it. It's connected to your rifle. It's always there, lightweight, easy to connect. Uh, And then you also have some shooting sticks as well. So some guys just prefer not to have any weight on the front of their rifle, and they like shooting off sticks. And so you made an option for those guys. Maybe just talk a little bit about those shooting sticks and the difference from uh, standard shooting sticks real quick. Yeah, well, like, you know, I'll use use your Eastman's guys as an example. I mean, they... They really love their original swagger, but you know, and, and I know you do too. Do a lot of backpack hunts, and you know, ounces shaving ounces goes a long way out there. And and so that's those ultralight uh, stalker light shooting sticks that we have. That, that kind of became uh, their favorite. And the cool thing about those, I mean, they're like an X style uh, shooting stick, and there's a bunch of those out there. But we have two independent bungees in there, so. Not only can you make fine-tuned adjustments while still being in the scope uh, and staying on your target, but 
um, they move independently. Of course, it's hard to, to show that on the air, but I mean, how many times have you been set on the side of a hill and, and, and you've got to make a, a shot across? Well, that's no problem. You just put your rifle down and pull it in there and it'll, it'll, it'll put it center and straight. And, um, because those two bungees move independently, it'll allow you to accommodate whatever terrain. And, you know, they fold up. They're like little tent stakes. You can put them in your pocket and have no problem. Um, we also uh, came up with the, the quick detach. And the quick detach was important. Not only there are some guys that, that just want to have the quick detach, but having that also solved problems. Um, we, because of the way most crossbows are made now, you can't attach our original swagger. You know, it has those safety four-in grips and, and to keep your thumbs away from the rails. And, and muzzle loaders were even starting to kind of add these different things, and uh, as well as for shotguns for guys turkey hunting. So the quick detach allows us uh, to attach to all three of those weapons now. Um, then for, for our long-range shooters and uh, moving more into the tactical uh, shooting world we, we have what we call a steel banger and man I, I love that bipod now it's a it, you know you're you're only going to be able to shoot from the prone from it um, we we may incorporate some longer legs to where you could get to a seated position at some point but right now it's a prone only uh, the springs are uh, quite a bit tougher to move than, than in the original swagger but it's got enough flexibility to let you move and acquire your targets fast and acquire multiple targets after you've shot. And for me, our products are built for situations. And they're built to move and adapt and overcome those situations that you're thrown. Because, you know, whether it be, you know, the elk walks behind a, a, a cedar where you were all set up with this awesome prone shot. And, and now, you know, you can't see unless you go from a seated or a kneeling position. So wh whatever that situation is, that's what we're trying to make our products for. And, um, you know, the steel banger fits in that mold too. There, you, you know, you can move, adjust, acquire that target fast. And, and, you know, if you've got to, which I, you know, rifle hunting with elk, I mean, there's quite a few times that it's going to take more than one shot on those big bulls. Oh, you keep shooting until those things go down. That's the that's the uh, first rule absolutely. of thumb, and usually the first one doesn't do it. No, I, and you know uh, I've seen you know help and guide and, and do run a lot of trips. I've seen a lot of elk killed, and I, I I I mean they're dead. You you double lung them, you've got them, but you want those things down before they run down in that canyon, and uh, you know. I, what I love about that steel banger, if you are in a prone position, I mean, you can just keep moving on it, adjust, get on it. And, you know, just like our Hunter series or any other product, I mean, we want to be able to, you, you can make those fine uh, tuning adjustments while you're still staying in the scope. Man, spot on. Uh, I believe they're the absolute best bipod shooting sticks in the market, Swagger. So, guys, if you're in the market for some new ones, make sure to check them out. Um, you're the perfect ambassador for Swagger as well, Josh, as you pay attention to all the details, you go on so many great adventures, and then you know your military background, um, just just knowing the 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 basics, and then um, you know the 
also the 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 more nuances of shooting and accuracy. The perfect ambassador. So man, I always really enjoy to talk to you, and and thanks for your continued support here on the podcast. Well, thank you, Brian, and, and same to you. And uh, you know, hopefully, um, you have a, a good off season and get those kids out like I'm doing. And uh, it's almost time to start preparing for the next season. Oh, that's exactly right. Yep, I definitely will. So thanks, Josh. We'll talk at you soon. All right. Talk to you later, Brian. All right, guys. That's a wrap. Uh, fun podcast with Josh. Just wild monkey stories. Those things scare the heck out of me. Uh, but just a great guy, a great company there at Swagger. Thanks for their continued support. Uh, make sure to check them out if you're in the market for new shooting sticks or a new bipod. Um, over there at Eastman's, uh, we have that exciting new launch, a tag hub. Really excited for that. Uh, should be coming in a couple days. I'll let you guys know on that. Um, again, we've got that uh, subscription to both magazines, that promo code through the podcast. Gets you a free outdoor edge knife, which I need a new one. Uh, I lost my I lost my knife. Maybe I, I don't think I gave it away to my dad. I think he's already got one. I'd like to say I gave it away to somebody, but the, the truth in actuality is, is that I misplaced it somewhere, so uh, I need to get a new Outdoor Edge knife as well, but a really sturdy blade on those things. They're a great knife, so you can get that promo code. Both magazines get that free Outdoor Edge knife, uh, $49.99. Just text ELEVATED220 to 22828, and um, yeah, man, um, what's going on for me? home now um got back from that trip to the olympic peninsula so fortunate just get to travel all over and just do the coolest things uh uh, fortunate to have really good friends you know my buddy polson he's down there for six weeks fishing uh so he's got a lot of knowledge down there uh it's back where i grew up it's fun to return home and fish for those steelhead on the coast so uh, just an awesome trip, kind of getting back from that, getting some work done, trying to get this couple into this brand new house here. We're just like, gosh, maybe a week away from having them done. So that'll be a big step, getting ready to work on my personal house here. And um, yeah, what do I got coming up? We we got bear season. Oh, I got that um, that new Matthews just shooting. Man, that thing's shooting. It's great with the daylight savings time, have a little bit more time at night. So just starting to ramp things up and um, just making sure I'm not going through the motions. Um, sometimes in the off season, you know, I'm shooting and I'm running, but I'm really not pushing it and challenging myself. Uh, so just trying to find that, that mental toughness to push harder and harder every year because hard work pays off. I just see the results in western hunting success just the more work i put into it so really trying to stretch myself and and uh push my limits make sure i'm i'm getting in my runs i'm shooting more arrows really messing with that bow but that new bow is just shooting so super excited about that i've got a hunt coming up i've got uh an odd ad hunt coming up here in april will be the next one it's just it's going to be a quick hunt um, but I got invited down by a buddy that's just got a bunch of acres down there and a bunch of odd ad sheep running around in rough country. Um, so yeah, I'm going to go give it a few days and go chase those things around, uh, see what I can do. It's, um, the blue collar sheep for sure. The, the odd ad, the mouflon I do in Hawaii, which, um, kind of trying, starting to put that together now, um, with my Hawaii buddies, but yeah, it's, it's going to be another awesome season. Uh, I'm into the applications right now and into dreaming about, you know, maybe I will draw one of these coveted tags somewhere, whether it's a coveted mule deer, 
you know, coveted sheep tag. I just love the opportunity to go hunt them and go chase them around. So we'll see. Got my name in a bunch of hats. And um, hopefully these state agencies draw my name out for some of these and um, just make some more uh, amazing memories and have some amazing adventures in 2020. I just can't wait. It's going to be an awesome season, guys. So uh, thanks, as always, for all the support. I appreciate it. The the uh, reviews on iTunes, the um, comments, messages to guests on the podcast. Man, that just means the world to me. Um, you know, you reach out when you hear somebody on that you like. Um, but yeah, thanks as always for all the support, guys. Um, boy, I've got I've got uh, three episodes now. I'm sitting on on that fly fishing podcast, so I'm pretty excited to release it and just see if we can, um, you know, see if we can build a following on that, like like we have on the hunting side of things. It's my other passion with a fly rod, and so I'm pretty excited about it. I've got three good episodes recorded, so um, I'm gonna launch that, get that released to you guys, so you guys can listen in and. Uh, we'll see if we can make something go there, but definitely don't want to take any focus away from this podcast and what we're doing, you know, having on these, these guests and these next level conversations. And, um, I just, I, I love this platform and I love being able to do this podcast and uh, I love being able to, to, to travel all over the West, uh, uh, bow hunting these different critters, man. So fun. So, um, thanks as always for all the support guys. Let's wrap this thing up. I'll check in with you next week.